0: Welcome to season three of Fred Talks. We are pleased to announce that season three will be a series of discussions about Fred's book, Judge Advocates in the Great War, 1917 through
1: 1922. I can picture the boys over there Making plenty of noise over there. over there
0: Mr. Fred Bork, regimental historian and archivist for the Judge Advocate General's Corps and professor of legal history and leadership at the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School, is here with us in the Nolan Reading Room. I am Captain Joel Hood, United States Marine Corps representative in the Center for Law and Military Operations, that's CLAMO. I'm trying to fill Major Justin Command's shoes and pleased to be your host. Mr. Bork, why is Fred Talk so popular in your opinion? Is it your natural charisma or your well-modulated speaking voice?
1: Boy, I think that's got to be exactly what it is, Captain Hood. Actually, I think the truth is... The Fred Talks are short. They're only about 10 or 11 minutes. uh, And given the attention span that almost everyone has today, I think that's a perfect uh, length. So I think that's one reason that they're popular. And of course, I really believe nothing's more interesting than military legal history.
0: No bias at all. No, none. (laughs) Sir, I'd just like to point out before we get started, that our listeners can find more information to include the PDF version of your book in the episode description. Now, as we get started, we're going to start with chapter one, which is titled The Army in World War I. And my first question is, why did you start with a chapter about the overall state of the U.S. Army? Because the Army
1: in this time period, not much more than 100 years ago, is just so different from the Army that we have today. In 1917, for example, there was no such thing as a division. We only had regiments, and the army was really, really small, only 133,000 soldiers. So the point of this first chapter and this first Fred talk is to really give you some context, because we had a very, very small army compared with what was in the way of armies fighting already on the continent in Europe. We were actually pretty pitiful. We were really a constabulary. Uh, Most of our troops were out in the Philippines. And again, we were not organized for battle in a big war, but rather built around uh, regiments. And yet by the end of the war, uh, we were building divisions that had 28,000 soldiers in each division. And I think I'm correct in saying we went from zero divisions to 54 divisions. So it was a huge expansion. And in fact, uh, we started in 1917, April of 1917, building this army, training it, equipping it, coming up with the manpower, and it's a huge undertaking. And that's relevant because the JAG department, as it was then known, had to considerably expand its forces, manpower, to meet the needs of a bigger army.
0: Yeah, that that goes right into my next question. Um, But I think we'll answer that more with the, the next episode, which is how the JAG Corps started meeting this need. You mentioned that they built up to a number of divisions. And these were all part of the American Expeditionary Force, the AEF?
1: Correct. So when the United States entered World War I in April 1917, uh, General Pershing, uh, John J. Blackjack Pershing, was the commander of the force going to Europe, and it was the American Expeditionary Force. The one we're most familiar with is the expeditionary force in France, but there was also an expeditionary force in North Russia and one in Siberia and we'll talk about that perhaps later in another talk. Um, But for France, as I said, Pershing is in charge of this American expeditionary force but you're building it literally from the bottom up. So four regiments are sent over to France and Pershing takes those four regiments and creates the first division, the Big Red One. The second division is also built in France from a Marine Corps regiment and an Army regiment. But after that, every single division is built at home in the United States. And it takes a long time to get them deployed over to France. And in fact, it's a very slow process. Uh, and. One of the issues is who's going to get the troops over there? Well, we didn't have enough ships, and so we actually depended on the French and the British to get what ends up being more than a million soldiers to France. The other thing that we should talk about is that you had 133 soldiers. Well, how are you going to build up? And the answer is that Congress authorized for the first time since the Civil War a wartime draft. And the wartime draft was quite unusual because it required everyone between the age or every man between the age of 21 and 30 years of age to register with a local draft board. Unlike the Civil War, though, where you could purchase an exemption and get out of the draft, this time around there's no such exemptions and all men are drafted through the use of local civilian draft boards. Every locality has one, and these civilian boards decide who's going to get drafted and who's going to stay behind to work in war essential jobs like farming, industry. Uh, About three million men are drafted, and uh, this is a remarkable achievement because it means that 67% of those wearing uniforms in World War I were drafted. This is a huge change from the past. And again, divisions of 28,000 men each, 54, but you need this huge amount of manpower. The first thing that the Army did was it it built these training areas. Most of them were in the South uh, for weather-related reasons, I think. For example, there was a training area to build up a division in Houston, Texas. There was one at Camp Gordon, uh, today Fort Gordon in Georgia. There was one at Camp Lee, today Fort Lee. And uh, these divisions were built there and then shipped out to uh, Europe. Almost every division lands uh, in France. Uh, There are some soldiers in England, uh, but then once they get to France, they join the AEF and they get ready to go into battle. One thing that's important for everyone who's listening to remember is that getting soldiers was one issue, but probably the biggest issue was officers. You have to remember that there's no such thing as a reserve officer training corps. You've got West Point graduates who are generally your officers in the army. It's possible to get a commission in the regular army coming through the National Guard or the volunteer uh, side of the house, the militia, as we called it then, but those are few and far between. So here's the problem. You're going to increase your army to millions of men. You need officers. Where are you going to get them? And by the way, You need 200,000 officers.
0: So more officers than they had soldiers total in the Army. Correct.
1: And it's a real issue. So the first thing that you do is you say, well, I'm going to look at deserving NCOs. And if I think they can be company-grade officers, I'll give them a commission. And that's what the War Department did. The War Department also said to the Marine Corps, we need Marine officers to serve in infantry regiments, will you give us Marine Corps officers? And the answer was yes. So there were quite a few Marines who served as officers, company commanders, usually battery commanders in uh, divisions in World War I. And then the other solution was to create an officer training program 90 days, they called them the 90-day wonders. And I think by the end of the war, if I'm not mistaken, there were 74% of the war's officers were 90-day wonders who'd gotten their commissions after going through an officer training course of just three months. And that, as you might imagine, is a real problem because 90 days is really not enough time to produce a good officer who understands the Army. After all, Reserve Officer Training Corps, Officer Candidate School, the basic course in the Marine Corps, a lot older, a lot more time than 90 days. But the issue, obviously, Captain Hood, is we got to have officers, and we have to have them now.
0: So they found a way to get there. They found a way to get there. Earlier you mentioned uh, some notable individuals uh, like General Pershing. Were there any other individuals that our listeners might recognize or, or have heard of before? Well, Pershing is certainly the
1: most famous uh, because he is the expeditionary force commander. Uh, and, but I think others that you're certainly going to know about are uh, Corporal Alvin York. Uh, he's probably the most famous doughboy, what we call G.I.s in World War I. And you'll probably remember this, that uh, he's a conscientious objector uh, he really does not want to serve in World War One, But after talking with his pastor, he decides that, all right, he'll serve in World War One. And on uh, at one point in the war, he single-handedly kills 15 to 25 of the enemy, captures 132 Germans as prisoners of war, and receives the Medal of Honor. There's a number of famous movies involving York, I think, Gary Cooper maybe stars in the famous uh, York movie. That's certainly someone who you would remember. And obviously, as I said, Pershing is another one.
0: Well, thank you for that. As we uh, kind of glide in to start uh, landing this plane, what's a, what's a lesson perhaps that today's Army and today's JAG Corps can take from this rapid expansion that we saw in World War I?
1: All of the officers who served in World War I, and certainly the young field-grade officers and the company-grade officers, many of them served in World War II, which you'll remember is less than 25 years after the end of World War I. And one of the things that the big army recognized was that we had to be better prepared for This sort of expansion for a big war. And that's why after World War I, the Army created the Reserve Officer Training Corps programs so that there would be a ready pool of officers in the Army Reserve who could be called upon to uh, serve. And in the JAG Corps, and we'll talk about this more later, in the JAG Corps, there's a recognition that having expanded from 17 judge advocates in 1916 to more than 425 by the end of 1918, we just couldn't learn on the job how to be lawyers. We couldn't get it by osmosis. We had to have some sort of education and training. And that's why, When World War II starts, the judge advocate general in 1941 says, let's have a JAG school so that we will be able to train and educate lawyers before they go out to serve commanders in the
0: field. Well, thank you, Mr. Bork. For me, this has been a reminder of the United States and the Army's culture and ability to rapidly change to meet new threats and challenges. I think it's something we pride ourselves on as Americans. In the next episode, we'll explore chapter two of Judge Advocates in the Great War, Judge Advocates in the United States during the war. We
1: will to stand side by side with
0: you. Mighty proud to have died with you. So goodbye, friends, you'll never be forgotten.